Welcome to this podcast from Field Partner International. This is one of a series of interviews posted on our website and YouTube channel, where we will hear from experienced missionaries sharing stories and insights from their journeys. We are an online community and resource for Christian missionaries working across cultures. You can visit our website, fieldpartner.org, which features free video courses, blogs, podcasts, sermons, and more. Subscribe to this channel, our YouTube channel, or Facebook page to stay updated on our latest resources. Hi everyone, I'm Christine Patterson from Field Partner, and I want to welcome you to uh, yet another interview um, that we're recording for our Field Partner community. I want to welcome um, Ruth Van Raken, who is well known to many people in the, um, who are third culture kids, would be explaining that term, and um, in the whole international uh, global transition arena. Uh, she wrote a book in 1984, uh, which really opened the whole um, scene up. And um, so many, many people know her through that. Uh, she then wrote up a, a second book later with um, Dave Pollock. And then she started a global organization called um, Families in Global Transition. So um, basically, my introduction to Ruth was when I met her at uh, two conferences last year. And since then, we have uh, just enjoyed a really good friendship through Zoom. Amazing what um, Zoom has done for us. All right, so, so Ruth, um, thank you so much for joining me um, today and for taking the time out. I know it's been a hard morning for you. Um, anyway, so let's just get straight into the interview. Can you paint a picture for us, first of all, about your background? Where were you born and raised? What did your parents do? And did you always believe or did you, how did you yourself come to faith? Thanks, Christine. It's really, really nice to do this with you because, as you just said, I've appreciated enormously our friendship and how iron sharpens iron, and you've been a blessing to me. For those who don't know, we share a similar background because both of us were raised in Africa uh, with missionary parents. And my father was actually raised himself as a missionary kid in Persia, which, of course, has become Iran. Mm. So he was born and raised there. And I never met my grandparents, who are both buried there. And my father came back to the States. He met my mother. And they decided they would go to Nigeria. Mm -hmm. It was just post-war then. So at that point, children couldn't go overseas, either by ship or boat, because of the danger of being sunk or blown out of the sky, I guess. So they decided they would go while my mother was still pregnant, so they could get there first. And so on the way, my sister was born in Lisbon, Portugal. A year later, I was born in Kano, Nigeria, and then I had four more siblings. So I grew up in Nigeria in a very happy experience. I love living there. My parents were teachers and so they started a mission school and later went on to doing uh, secondary education and my father then became an administrator later. I loved my life growing up. I loved uh, the trees, I loved my friends, I loved market. It was normal life for me. Right. And sometimes people say, tell me how it was to grow up in Africa. I think, well, it was just growing up. And so it was hot, but that was normal. And so that was um, 
how my life was until I was 13. But you ask how I came to faith. And I guess for me, I was a child. I was, I remember being four and a half. It sounds very young, but they were talking in Sunday school about you would go to hell if you didn't ask Jesus in your heart. And I surely knew I didn't want to go to hell. And so on my way home from Sunday school, I asked my friends just to wait for my siblings. And I remember I went off to the side of the road to a tree and I said, dear Jesus, please come in my heart, forgive my sins. And, um, you know, I don't know what a child knows, Mm -hmm. but I know that God takes us the way we come. I used to wish I had a really exciting story. I would hear later of people who had these marvelous conversions. And I thought, I have such a boring story, but I thank God for actually the godly heritage I have. Mm. And also the training and the um, emphasis on memorizing scripture. When I was a child, my mother always said, you won't remember it when you get old. You'll remember what you learn now, but it's much harder to memorize when you're older. And she was right. So I appreciate that. Yeah, that's great. So where did your schooling take place? Your parents, like mine, were both teachers, but we were sent away, were we not? So um, tell me some of the, the chapters in that schooling. Well, we do share some similar stories there. I think the interesting thing in those days, people did think about children of missionaries going to school with the people they taught. And there was a reason for that. My parents were teaching in a British curriculum They were teaching in Hausa for the first six years of the kids' schooling, and then they would switch to teaching in English, but by then the kids were ready to graduate. One of the things about being a third culture kid, which is somebody whose parents come from one country and you grow up another, and you kind of form a life that's in between both of them. It's not a mixing, it's a different way of life than you would live either back home or like your like my Nigerian friends would live. It was a way of life that I shared with others who Mm. were there for the same kind of reasons. And part of that expectation is that one day you will go back home. Mm. Uh, Of course, Nigeria felt like home, but the assumption was that the United States was my home. That meant for my parents and the, the way life was in those days that I would need education that would prepare me for that. For that reason... Uh, our mission had a boarding school, and the normal practice was kids went to boarding school. So at six, I got on an airplane, and I went for the first two years. Then we went to the States for the third year. I still remember the day we were driving someplace, probably to some church for home assignment or whatever they called it then. And my mother turned around and she said, what would you think if you stay at home and I taught you at home Hmm. and I didn't bat an eyelash. I liked my home. I liked my parents. I missed them when I was away. So we certainly agreed. But for the next four years, we sat in the back of my mother's classroom. So in between her work with the Nigerians, she would come back and she had four of us back there on a little desk and she would write out our assignments. And so that's how I went to school until I was, In my last year, I went fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grade there, came back to the U.S. when I was in eighth grade, which was, as you know, Christine, not an easy transition. It's not easy to go to a place. Age 13, right? What did you say? 
Age 13. Age 13. Age 13 is a lousy year. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lousy year anyway. Lousy. But it's a really bad year when um, you look like everybody else. It was pre-integration days. Yeah. So people, and I spoke American English, so people assumed that I knew mm. how life worked, and I hadn't a clue. I didn't know the right kind of clothes. I didn't know anything. So that was my eighth grade year. Um, and after that dreadful year, I was supposed to start high school in our U.S. Um, thing. So I just decided I wouldn't tell anybody um, about that I'd ever been to Africa because it made me so weird. Wow. Big decision. So when you say in your book that you lost your whole world in a moment, I guess that's exactly how it felt. You had to sort of... It is how it felt. And I didn't know that till I was 39 uh, when I was writing. And I'll tell you about that experience later. But I never understood the enormity of the loss. Right. Because I had always thought I would happily that, oh, we'll go back to America. This will be home. and. Um, I just assumed that it would all be normal. And of course, when we had visited before, first I was younger, and so you're not in the same kind of social situations. But I always knew I was going back to Nigeria, so it was temporary. And now, when I was 39 and I was writing about it, I suddenly realized that was the day my world died when I took that airplane ride and I left Nigeria. And we never had a funeral because, of course, nobody died. But all my trees were gone. All my friends were gone. All the sights and the smells, everything that made home home was gone. But there was no funeral. There's no way to say goodbye because there's so much good coming ahead. So that was part of my story later. Um, and during the years I was doing it, my parents went back to Nigeria a year later when I started high school. And I stayed with my grandmother and my aunt, which was a wonderful experience. They were so good to me, and it was another gift from God. But I didn't have my parents. And when I was doing the journaling at 39, I realized that when my parents left, that was the day my family died, hmm. because we were never yeah. six kids and two parents again. But again, nobody died. So hmm. how do you mourn that? How do you do that? But what I did do was to put... Africa away and it's like just pulling down a shade and saying it's gone there's nothing I can do about it and I will be American now and I actually did a good job um, I had good friends I threw myself into being what we now would call a chameleon um, where I learned how to put the right things on I still didn't know a lot of things I didn't know the sports I didn't know how to swim I've never learned how to swim really properly so I learned what to avoid also, so that I wouldn't look too stupid. Mm. I don't know, did you do that? I did. Christine? <laughs> so Where you kind of like... Resonate. Huh? Right, so many things resonate. Yeah. yeah. So then what yeah. happened after you graduated from high school then? Um, you, you, you decided, I think you said that you decided early on you wanted to go for medical training? Yes, I did. It's interesting, I think, how God works in people's lives, because when I was a child in Nigeria, I always went to the eye hospital. I watched surgery. I went to the dispensary, and I watched the nurses. I went out on the village health teams. I mean, that's the only thing I wanted to do. My grandparents had been 
in Iran had been medical missionary, so that was what I was going to do. It's interesting, uh, just a side note, I said to someone I was going to be a nurse, and they said to me, why don't you be a doctor? So I think in the world I grew up in, women had a lot of power. There was never an assumption for me that I couldn't do something because I was a woman, because I think so many of the women were out there where there weren't even men, you know, doing churches and riding their motorcycles around the bush and doing all kinds of wonderful things. So it never occurred to me that I couldn't do that. But I remember in church when I was about 10 or 11, a hymn that says, Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee. And it said, perish every fond ambition, all I thought and hoped to know. And I thought, aren't I going to get to be a doctor? It was just a, just a moment. I thought, oh, that's silly. Of course, I'm going to be a doctor. But then I took chemistry in high school. And I looked back and I didn't have a very good teacher. But anyway, I didn't do well mm-hmm. at all. And I thought, well, I can't do medicine if I can't do chemistry. So I forgot about that for a while. I went to Wheaton College. I started. I still did have no idea what I wanted to do. But one day they had a first aid class in some required freshman class. And while they were talking, I thought, I could still maybe be a nurse. Hmm. They had a nursing program there. I didn't actually want to do it because I didn't want to leave because it was an all-girls school. And I thought, I'll never get married if I switch schools here. But anyway, I, you know, the feeling was so strong. So I applied. They accepted me. And so then I began at West Suburban Hospital School of Nursing and had an absolutely wonderful three years, because in those days we lived together in the dorm, right attached to the hospital, so we had a complete community. But then it was there also that my husband was working as an orderly in summer between his two years. It was sort of like, you know, the hospital story. And um, so we met, and when I said to him, what do you want to do when you grow up? He said, I want to be a medical missionary to Nigeria. Now, he had the right country, he had the right field, and so, you know, my vision, again, is we're going to be holding hands in the surgical department, you know, uh, passing instruments, but then he became a pediatrician, so that kind of foundered, but still, that's where we were going, and felt called together, and, you know, that God was in it, and he was in it. But then you didn't go to Nigeria. You landed up in, in Liberia. How did that happen? Well, God's got his ways. And for those of you who are in the middle of figuring out that God doesn't maybe know what he's doing, I mean, you know he does, but you wonder sometimes. We had a chance to get a scholarship when my husband was uh, a senior in medical school. After we got married, he started medical school. That was fine. Um, And so we applied, and they would pay for him to do a rotation in another country. So one week, we got notice that we had applied. We'd applied to go to Nigeria. My parents were still there. So we got the notice. We got the money. That was great. We also found out that week I was pregnant. And that was okay, because we were going to have the baby then during that time. But my mother was there. And it's a hospital I knew. It was the world I knew. And then we found out the doctor who was our sponsor had just died of loss of fever. So that was like, wait. So we got another doctor. And I've often thought if we didn't get the money that week, we would have stopped. Mm -hmm. But God has his timing as well. 
So one day, the visas weren't coming, and we were making potential plans to go to Liberia because my aunt was there. So we needed to make sure we did something, but I just knew God would give us those visas. Mm -hmm. So I was pleading with him, and it was like God said, did you want to go to Nigeria or did you want to follow me? I thought, but God is the same thing. I've always been going to go there. You call David, you call me. But finally, you know, having to say, well, bottom line, I want to follow you. And so at that point, we felt like we couldn't, um, we had to make a decision. And so it was like, if we don't have the visa by August 1, God, then we will go to Liberia. And so I went to the mailbox. I was sure that it would be there because I'd heard so many stories about how God comes through at the last minute. And I went and there was no visa. And so I had to agree with what Rarg and I made God that then we'd go to Liberia. So that was how we did. And we again had a wonderful time. But in December, we were able to go back. Um, Nigeria gave us a visa to get to I mean, Liberia gave us a visa to get to Nigeria. So we went and had Christmas with my parents, mm -hmm. introduced them to their first grandchild. And I saw my childhood places again. And they had shrunk, but they smelled and looked and felt so much the same. It's and something. suddenly the curtain went back up. Yeah. Great. So um, at that point, when you were in Liberia, did you feel that your TCK background had been a help or did you still feel like, um, you know, you were disadvantaged by having that kind of a background? I never felt disadvantaged. Um, I had no, no awareness yet of the full impact of my story on my life. And I think that's another thing for parents to know that as kids are growing up, in a way, like I said, it was so normal for me to be an MK that I didn't know anything else. And in high school and college, you're kind of living in that reality uh, more fully. You don't have enough perspective. So when I went back, I think what I felt was, wow, it's, it's fun. I forgot this. The oranges are green. Uh, you know, there's dust everywhere. Everything's good. Um, there's flies on the meat in the market. I mean, everything just looked great. You know, it looked like it was supposed to be. And so that was fun. And I think it was an advantage in that um, it was a positive experience. And we worked with wonderful people. And so we felt more energized than ever to go. What I didn't realize was the impact that would follow when I left that time. Mm, yeah. So then... Um... Well, I think you, you went back to the U.S. for more training, and then you went back to Liberia later. So at what point did you start feeling that you needed to recapture some of this stuff from your past? When did you, um, what led you to write the book? When I went back to the States after David's internship, I mean, his time as a medical student in Liberia, we moved to St. Louis, and for the first time, I crashed. Hmm. I was so depressed. I didn't know why. We moved to a place that was pre-internet and very expensive phone rates then. I didn't have any friends. I didn't know anybody. Hmm. But I had a new baby who didn't 
speak to me. And I'd always kept busy as my way of being happy and successful and just pushing aside anything that was troubling me. And uh, now in high school, when I did that, I'd have these silent moments. When I think about it, I go to the piano and I play very soulful songs like, Oh, Love That Will Not Let Me Go and Peace, Perfect Peace with Loved Ones Far Away. But, you know, I was just singing. I didn't realize what I was saying. So we went to St. Louis. My husband was on call like every other night sometimes. And I just crashed. I was totally depressed. I didn't get out of bed some days or I'd read the newspapers till noon and I had no idea what had happened. Hmm. And I look back now and I know what happened, that I had touched this part of my life that I had never dealt with or understood. But it was also a good time because I needed God in a way I never had before. And I was saying one time to somebody, well, if I just read my Bible more and if I just prayed more, I'm sure I'd be fine. And this person said to me, do you hear what you're saying? Basically, you're saying there's a little magic formula. And if you can do your part right, then God has to do his. He said, I don't think that's really faith. Why don't you just ask God to be God and see what he'd like to do? And I realized it was true. I couldn't even say now, God help me, because it felt like there was nothing to help. I had never been this low before. And I was so surprised because it didn't feel like me. But um, God did meet me in different ways. And so uh, I still didn't understand my story yet. But uh, the verses in Isaiah about he would comfort the morn and give beauty for ashes. I would just hang on to them. And I think, I don't know how you're going to do that. And so then we finished that time. We went back, we went to the Navy for two years because it was still a requirement. And we were in a wonderful church. And so life got back to, you know, okay, I, this is good. This is good. And um, they were a very mission minded church. And so we, we got back on track for missions because when I was so depressed, I said, you know, this is, I mean, what have I got to give anybody? Nothing, nothing. And um, maybe we're just supposed to give, but we were in this church. They were wonderful. So we, 1976, we went back to Liberia full time. And uh, our first term was very hard. And for those of you who are going, I realize it feels like in that first term, often the enemy wants to knock people out. And so there are different things that happened. We had, my uncle was in a motorcycle accident and he was a missionary there and my cousin was on the bike. And so they were in the hospital then and he was dying and our house was robbed that night. I mean, it was just like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Life was never this chaotic before. I had never been through anything like this before. And I was in the hospital with my cousin and I wanted to pray for him to, be healed, but I, I couldn't believe that he would be. He'd had 36 units of blood just from one person into him, one person into him. And then it felt like it would be my fault if he died because I didn't have enough faith. And I cannot explain to anybody how Jesus meets us in those moments. But I saw him, it was like he took me to the Garden of Gethsemane where I saw him weeping. And he said, Ruth, I know what it is not to want the Father's will. Sometimes it's very painful. 
And he said, because of that, I'm going to, I'm not going to push you through this. I'm going to carry you. And I think in my background, one of the things that had been a problem for me was the feeling that if I had enough faith, I shouldn't have pain. And if I had pain, I didn't have enough faith. And here's Jesus in his moment of greatest faith, having greatest pain. In greatest pain, he has his greatest faith. And this incredible paradox that pain and faith are not mutually exclusive is what gave me permission probably to do everything that I've done since then. Because I could finally look at my story without saying, was it right? Was it wrong? Was it God's will? Wasn't it God's will? But that the paradox of having such a rich life and yet so many losses from the separations that were caused by this lifestyle. Mm. Uh, I didn't know that yet, but God prepares us a little bit at a time. And also I felt God's comfort in a way I'd never experienced before, that he, in the middle of this, he would hold me. And I thought, I think this is the peace that passes understanding. I mean, we cried. It didn't change that my uncle died. It didn't change my cousin's rehabilitation. It didn't change the robberies that had happened and continued to happen for some reason that first term. But the presence of God was there, and I guess I'd never needed him so badly before. And yet, at the end, I said, these aren't things I would choose to go through. But in another way, they're not things I would have missed because of what I learned about God in, the, in that time. So then you did, when you were 39, feel you had permission to go back and you wrote a very impactful book as letters that you never sent. So um, that, that was the, I'd love to recommend that book for anyone who either is an MK or is raising children on the mission fields. I'd love you to read it so that you can really understand from the inside what it feels like. So uh, tell us about the impact that that book had on you as you wrote it and also um, on others as you, as you uh, brought it out to the world. One of the things I've learned in life is that when I have a reaction I don't understand, there's a reason for it. Mm. Uh, Liberia was having some political issues, but basically... It wasn't even that. We'd lived through the coup. Everything was actually going very well. I wound up, I forgot to say this, when I went back to Liberia, another big shock was they didn't need my nursing. Here I've prepared my whole life to be a medical missionary, and they had nationalized the nursing. They had put Liberians in the nursing jobs. They didn't want expats taking those jobs. And I'm like, excuse me, God. Hello? You know, um, you call me, I'm ready, I train. And I absolutely, absolutely couldn't understand that. But sometimes he doesn't let us understand. He says, go by faith. And so it wound up, instead of doing nursing, I wound up doing Bible studies with international women. And I know one of my Bible studies, I just noticed we had 17 and we were from 14 different countries. But many of them had cross-cultural marriages because they had met their husbands when they were overseas, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so they were struggling with some of the cross-cultural aspects of their life. They were raising children who were being raised between different cultures, and they weren't missionaries. They were ambassadors' wives. They were bankers' wives. They were all kinds of different business people or uh, 
NGOs, whatever it was. And so that was a place where, number one, I got over being afraid of rich, fancy expats. That when I was a child, all those British colonialists, they bought their cookies and we had to make our cookies. And they went to market and bought their imported meat. And I mean, they didn't go to market. They went to supermarket and we went to market, you know. So there was kind of this grand rift of like they were really up there. But I found out in Bible study, they're just people. And all those fancy dresses they put on for their embassies are just fancy dresses for that night. And they're still real people. So that, that was a lesson I was learning. Didn't know I was learning it. And um, so things were going well after that first term. And one day I was in my bed and I, I felt God say, you're not going to be here forever. I thought, what? Missionary school, they die there. My grandparents are, you know, and my father was 34 years in Nigeria till he got a brain tumor. But I said, if that's really from you, you'll have to show us. And so we went home. But when we came back, they had closed the government hospital. My husband was seconded to. They closed the medical school he was working in. And you just knew God was saying, it's time for something different. That was a great shock. It was a great sadness in a way, because by then we really loved Liberia. We, our kids were happy there. We were happy there. But sometimes, you know, when God asks you to move, and then he asked you. So because we were going to go back, um, my husband's, my daughter was going to start high school. And so her grandma said, why don't you come start in Chicago? Because your parents will be here next year and then you won't have to change. I'd stay with my grandmother and some of the kids were going to go back to boarding school. So it all seemed like a good idea. But I had a massive reaction. And I was suddenly feeling like I did when Dave was an intern. I was angry. I was depressed. I didn't understand it at all. So finally, I said, okay, God, what am I feeling? Because I felt this before, but my life is very different now. It's not like then I could blame Dave's absence and the internship. But life is going well now, and I'm still feeling it. What is it? And I had this thought, well, my daughter's leaving. Maybe it connects to when I left my parents. And so I didn't know what to do except, I mean, there's no therapist, you know, in Liberia at that point. And so the idea that I'm sure God gave me, but the idea came just to write my parents from being six years old. So that's how I started. And the minute I started to write, I was a six-year-old. I could feel all those feelings I had tried so hard not to feel in boarding school, where my stomach was tight, I'm sobbing, I miss my mommy, the light is out, I just can't stand it, and yet my parents aren't there. So as the adult, I had words now. As a child, you don't have words. I have those letters, some letters from boarding school, and I see the child writing, but the child can't speak. They don't have language. So then I started processing. So in the middle of that, uh, trying to understand my story, um, I wasn't writing a book. It probably wouldn't have been so honest if I was writing a book by my mind. I was doing it by my gut. And um, so somebody said to me, how did you ever remember all that? And I said, well, I didn't remember it. I re-experienced it. And someone else said, no, you allowed yourself to experience it for the first time when you were going through it. You know, you tried so hard not to. So in the middle of that, I got a survey to do for our children about their educational process. And there was going to be this first 
International Conference on Missionary Kids in the Philippines in 1984. And so we're supposed to write all this stuff out. And Dave Pollock, whom I didn't know yet, was one of the organizers. So he had sent out this survey. So I sent it back in with all the answers about the children. And then I was kind of mad. And I said, what are you doing for the adult? I'm 39. Nobody ever did a reentry seminar. I'm looking at your program. Nobody did any of that for us. And now at 39, I'm trying to figure out my life story. So maybe I'm the only one, but if you would like, I'll send it to you. So that was the beginning of breaking, you know, my personal silence on it, because I said, maybe it'll help you do your conference better. So, of course, he said he would like to read it. And he said he didn't think I was the only one. And one way or another, I wound up at that conference. I still don't actually know how that happened, because I don't, I know I didn't pay. I don't know if the mission did. I don't know how it happened. But I went there, and it was interesting. They were saying to Dave and others, you know, the missions were saying, well, we want you to talk about education. The kids are fine. Don't talk about emotional stuff, you know. But anyway, that was a beginning. And Dave encouraged me then to publish uh, the letters that I had written. And nobody would publish them because they said, well, it's a nice story, but who cares? There's not that many people who've lived like this. And I tried to say, well, it's really a faith story that happened in missions. It's my faith journey, really. And it happened to me because I was an MK. And, and, uh, but a friend of mine who was a printer, he heard about it. And he said, well, I'll print them. And if you sell, you can pay me back. If not, I'll take the loss. So the first of the books was very... Um, well, I didn't want him to spend any money typesetting or anything else. It was very homegrown. Um, but it came out then just before the second international conference. And on that, I was going to talk about the paradox of pain and faith. And so I had taken 160 copies of that. He just finished putting it together. And all of them were gone by two that afternoon. Because it was a very, um, the guy who introduced me was crying, and the guy who was singing was crying, everybody was crying, so it didn't matter what I said. And so then, um, because of that, the 500 people at the conference took the book around the world, and then we had some interesting days. Right, I bet you did. So, uh, but then you realized um, that it wasn't just MKs that have this profile, this third culture kid profile. So um, what, how did you land up getting involved with international schools and doing conferences for global nomads, you know, generally in the cultural setting as well? Because remind me, it's people who've been diplomats um, in the military, or business people, all their kids have exactly the same third culture kid military, some educational, and, you know, there can be different reasons, but those were early days. And um, the first thing that happened was in the mission community, there was a reaction, both people who wrote me and said, I never knew that anybody else felt like me, mm -hmm. parents who used the book to try and talk to their friends, but other people were shocked. So there was a time, I think, that they had to get used to the fact maybe that you could have pain and faith together that if we talked about the hard part because the book is really looking at the losses I didn't know I had mm. um, 
But at that conference, that second conference in Ecuador, I was sitting in the audience after it had finished. And I had told God before I went, I said, I'll do this one thing. And if it's just my story, then I'm done because I'll work on myself. But I was sitting there and I had again a picture of Jesus with a little girl. And he said, we have to go look for the ones that got lost, Ruth. And so there were these thorny thistle bushes and we were looking one at a time for kids. And I thought then he meant the MKs and he didn't mean the MKs because many were lost from faith and in woundedness. And he said, that's who we're going to look for. And he's, but however God speaks guys. Um, but it was that, but they're not in mission conferences. They're not even in church anymore. Mm. And I said, well, how am I going to find them? He said, they're in the international world. I said, well, how am I going to get there? Because of course I just know the mission world. But that was why when we did the third culture kid book later, and I uh, took the material that Dave Pollock had been working on third culture kid profile, the common characteristics and tried to help him write that up. We made it secular because the feeling was from me uh, and God was that if MKs who felt wounded, they blamed God for everything. They blamed God for any hurts they had. And because their life had come. Yeah. And it happened within the context of serving God. But there was an awful lot of the wounding that really came from the normal parts of anybody who's living cross-culturally that these chronic cycles of separation and loss can really affect us. And so I felt like if we could separate what was normal from what was God, we could maybe talk about God. That was the beginning of mm -hmm. doing the book secular. But then by doing the book secular, all these other people came out of the woodwork. And it seemed like, you know, I had way more interaction with people from these other communities. And so uh, we had then Families in Global Transition trying to bring together people of the different sectors so we could discover what were the commonalities that we had, even though we had our distinctives, but there was so much commonality. And then it grew one more step past that. Yeah. You want to hear about yeah. that? Yeah, go ahead. Well, I think... For me, at the moment, the joy is just, how did God give me a life that was so preparatory for what the world has become? Mm. When we did the uh, Families in Global Transition, like I say, and I first started working with the particular groups of people who had gone overseas because of a parent's career. That was the distinctive, basically, about this group. And so they had gone overseas for a parent's career, but not actually as immigrants. And in the early days, what we said was, well, it's different than an immigrant because they expect to repatriate and go back to their home and an immigrant comes to stay and whatever. But the more we discussed, the more the book came out, the more people read about it. So many people said to me, I didn't do it because of my parents' career, but I relate to everything that you're talking about or at least many of the things. So am I a third culture kid, and am I not? And it was getting very confusing. So I thought, well, if we could look, I wanted to look at the story and the bigger picture even. What is it that we share beyond just the kids who did it because of a parent's career? So I talked about cross-cultural kids, and third culture kids were one way you can grow up cross-culturally. But people also grow up cross-culturally when their parents are from two different countries. 
mm-hmm. because their grandparents may speak different languages. They grow up cross-culturally when they immigrate or their parents immigrate. Many times their home is still living in you know, a traditional way, particularly some Asian kids who right. go to school in a Western culture. So there were all kinds of ways that people were growing up cross-culturally and not only different ways, but the same child could be growing up in four and five different ways. And that became, has become extremely interesting to me because I think the issues of identity are becoming incredibly difficult, not just for the missionary kid, but for people of all these different backgrounds, the whole world almost, if you look at how we usually find identity, and that's a whole other discussion, but people formed it, they were in, basically monocultural situations throughout history, mostly. And everybody in the community kind of shared what their values were, and they all knew how to, you know, you, how life worked here. Mm-hmm. You kind of learned the rules yeah. in your first years, then you tested it maybe as an adolescent, and then you went on. But you always knew who was us and who was them. Mm-hmm. So the sense of belonging, my mother was 34 years in Nigeria, but it never occurred to her she was not from Chicago, because that's, everything about her and she'd grown up and was steeped in all of that and so when we see what's happening in the world part of it i think is that people can't figure out who they are Mm. in the traditional ways so they're having to try and pull back and make those ways again and we're living in a global world and how do we do that so i am fascinated uh and i feel like we're now in a whole nother level of understanding the third culture kid experience that many people have many more layers than we even knew to negotiate. And, and you know that, Christine, you've worked with that all kinds of times. So um, one last question then. For, uh, you had a very interesting um, phrase in your book about how the, the process you went through was listening to life, learning. So if, you, if, so if you wanted to answer someone who said, how can I process my own background? You know, because you've mentioned separation and loss. You've mentioned issues of identity. Um, for me, often it was a question of belonging. Where on earth do I belong? And also this thing of nobody understands. Mm-hmm. Nobody gets me. So, I mean, how That's would right. you counsel someone or, or draw alongside someone and help them to process their story? I think, uh, thank you for reminding me about listening to life. Like I said when I had this reaction for my daughter, what I've learned in life is when I'm having something that is excessive to the moment. Yes, there can be something I can blame in the moment, but um, I always ask God, what am I feeling? Mm. And then when I get the word, I think, okay, when did I feel like this before? Do I have time to tell you one more story? Yeah, please. I had cancer. I had cancer. 20 years ago now, I guess. And that was fine. I mean, it wasn't fine, but it was, you know, five. And I went through the chemo, uh, the whole issue about being bald, that was its own story. But I thought I was doing quite well, being terribly spiritual and quite noble. Then I was going to start chemo, not chemo, uh, radiation. And all of a sudden that darkness came, that darkness. And I thought, what is this about? Because... Everybody said radiation wasn't as bad as chemo. And plus, I was thinking I was doing fine. I had a basically good prognosis. And so I thought, what am I feeling? And the words came, I don't want to do it. I thought, well, what's that about? I don't want to do it. 
And I had this picture that they were going to, it felt like they were putting me on a gurney and they're pushing me to my execution or that I was laying on the train rails and the train's coming. There's nothing I can do to stop it. And it didn't make sense to me that it's not that big a deal. So I said, okay, God, when did I feel like this before? And instantly I realized it was the night before my parents went to Africa for four years. Mm. And I didn't want to do it. But I didn't think I had a choice. One of the other things I've learned when I'm feeling this way is what are my choices? Because I think many times, especially if God asks it, you don't have a choice. And I thought, maybe I had a choice then. I don't know. It didn't feel like I did because I didn't want to get in their way. I didn't want to be disobedient to God. But then I thought, okay, I do have a choice. I don't have to go tomorrow. And that changed everything then because I could separate the feeling from a past event. Mm. And so then I could say, okay, I'm going to make a choice. But then I could also go back and say, okay, God, let's go back to that moment. Did I just think you were being a bully? Did I really feel like I was your victim? And so then I could process that in a new way again with God. Because yes, I'd seen it was like they died. But now I had to say, will I submit if that was your will or that's what you asked? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine. And so I could process even though it was a long time ago. Mm. That for me, those things, and then also I asked Jesus, when did you feel like it? Because he said he felt everything we did. And somehow in that process of identifying and processing and, and working that out with God, I also found out when I was doing my work with letters that became letters, Somebody said, well, you're not supposed to go back, you know, just think forward, whatever's ahead. So I said to Jesus, is it okay with you? Because I thought you took me back. And am I just being, you know, living in the past? I don't know again how he speaks, but instantly he said, Ruth, I'm eternal. I'm in all time, all the time. Mm. When you were six, you didn't know what to do with the pain. And I want to say to anybody who's listening, when you were whatever mm. and something happened to you, you didn't know what to do with it. All we could do is try not to feel it. And I felt like Jesus saying to me then, you know, I let you go on because you were too young. You were too small. It was too intense. But I'm still there. And I'm there for you to come back now and sit with me in it. And let's talk about it now. And that's where the tears came and the journaling came for me. I'm a journaler. People can do it any way that God has made you. But each time I would come, particularly in doing letters, and i say, Jesus, will you come to that six-year-old? She didn't know how to find you. She didn't know how to find you. Or to the teenager. And I don't always have a great mystical moment. Sometimes there's that sense of him being there. But he has come. and. In surprising ways, in surprising moments, he shows me. Uh, one time he showed me that I was an orphan, and I thought, when am I an orphan? And I realized the magnitude of being six years old in a way is the same as being an orphan. So we had to process that. And of course, in the end, what does he say? He said, I won't leave you as an orphan, but I will come to you. And I will be the comforter. 
And so there's part of the whole mystery of faith is that in these incredibly practical ways, uh, we can find moments where Jesus takes us back and he actually can heal and the past. And sometimes he could do it different ways. Some people it's in therapy, some people it's in drawing, some people it's in music. For all of us, it's probably in a progress. When COVID came, I felt it again because we had just moved and I didn't know anybody and I'm isolated again. All my life plans were kind of upended, but this time I knew it was grief. Mm. So this time I could say, okay, this is grief. This isn't depression. This is grief. We've just lost a whole way of life. And that's fair to be sad. I don't have to be mad at myself. I can do things about it, but, you know, so we can grow, but we're never going to be perfected till we make it there, I think. Right. Excellent. Ruth, thank you so much for sharing. And um, I know it's, I mean, it's been a tonic for me, and I'm, I'm sure it's going to be very, very helpful to many people as they listen. Um, so I want to say this is the end for this interview, but um, please do go to um, the website to listen to this um, interview and also um, all the others that we have up there and um, like us on Facebook. Um, let other people know that these resources are there and just um, thank you so much for joining with us. Okay, bye-bye. God bless. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Field Partner. You can watch or listen to more interviews by subscribing to this channel, our YouTube channel, or our Facebook page. For free cross-cultural mission courses, blogs, sermons, and other resources, visit our website, fieldpartner.org.